For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The Oklahoma legislature decided to call it quits for the 2020 session after spending just 36 days at the Capitol from February to May, possibly the fewest days in state history. Neva, the legislature can still meet all the way to the last Friday this month. Why would leadership opt to leave? Well, I think at this point, the business that they intended to uh, take uh, take care of has been done. And now it's really just an issue of will they come back in and, and override some of the vetoes that the governor has made in, in recent days. And I think that's uh, the timing on that is still uh, in question. Uh, the House has said that they're coming back in on Friday uh, to uh, uh, to at least caucus and potentially do some business. The Senate uh, uh, at least at, at the moment that we're uh, recording has not uh, uh, said anything definitive. But the long and the short of it is, I think we can expect that the legislature is going to come back in and uh, look at overriding some of these vetoes that the governor's done. Now, Ryan. Yeah, I think Neva's right. I mean, given the, the the climate out at the Capitol, I mean, we've got, we're, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, even though we have, you know, elected officials across the board kind of acting like we're not in the middle of a pandemic. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. And, um, you know, so that, and even though the legislature at many times over the last couple of weeks have acted like they're not in a pandemic. I mean, you know, if you just tuned into the state legislature and watched, you'd be forgiven to be to think that this was just any other May, uh, any other end of the legislative session, um, with the exception of a handful of lawmakers wearing masks and during the roll call vote, uh, going to the to the video of some of the legislators so that they could vote absentee, uh, even though many lawmakers voted that Oklahomans couldn't vote absentee, at least easier than absentee ballots are already out there. So I think they wanted to get out of there. They passed the they passed the budget. Uh, they the governor vetoed it. They overrode it. That was it. And like Neva said, you know, the, the House is coming back in. You know, we're taping on Thursday. House will be in today, which is you know Friday when our when most Oklahomans uh, are listening to this. Uh, they'll be back in on Friday. You know, I talked to some senators. There's some sense that they are going to come back in, but no clear plans of what that looks like, or if they'll have to come back next week, you know, given some of the veto timing that that they anticipate on some of these, you know, further stit vetoes. Um, you know, I think that they reserved this time to come back uh, because they knew that some vetoes were in the works. Uh, we're starting to see, you know, non-doc Trey Savage uh, has done a, a really great job of reporting some of the, the underlying tensions, the, the source of a lot of the underlying tensions that we've seen throughout this legislative session. And we're beginning to see a lot of those come to light in the last few days. Neva, do you and think? I think the other, oh, go ahead. Uh, Michael, I think the other thing to note is that when we talk about end of session, I mean, particularly in years like this, where we do have an election coming up in five plus weeks, uh, this, is a, this also factors into everything that's going on. We have lawmakers that are running for re-election uh, that are... Uh, uh, that are trying to balance uh, legislative duties as well as uh, campaign uh, campaign activities and campaign activities that have been greatly uh, curtailed uh, as a result of uh, the pandemic. So um, it's 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 been a very uh, a very unusual session to say the least. We we talked about that almost from the outset. Uh, uh, all of the twists and turns that uh, almost started from day one. Now we see in this final stretch uh, lawmakers, I think, exerting their 
um, kind of exerting their muscle uh, on the legislative uh, agenda and the process and really pushing back on this governor, even though it's a Republican legislature, Republican-controlled legislature, Republican governor, uh, really making their point of who they believe is in charge of making some of these big decisions. Ryan, do you think the lawmakers are also really wanting to get on the campaign trail quickly? Well, whatever the campaign trail looks like uh, in in May of 2020 uh, or even of June, July of 2020. I mean, this is um, this is such a a strange time to be campaigning, you know, for, you know, I think back to to my times on uh, on the trail. uh, I preferred to be on doorsteps. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be talking to voters in person. I wanted to take my case directly to the people that would be casting a ballot for or against me on Election Day, uh, preferably for me. Uh, but those, you know, those days are gone for the most part. I can't imagine a can't, and I love it now as a constituent. Uh, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood where my state Senator and my, my state representative are, are nearby all the time. And, you know, but I can't imagine either one of them knocking on my door right now. So it's a strange time to campaign. Uh, one of the just interesting things just real quick is that a lot of the, the subtext of the fights that we're seeing right now is exactly what Neva said. It's it's a it's a it's a struggle between the legislative branch and the executive branch, uh, which is really you know for political science geeks out there, you know, pay attention to that because that's that's really what's happening and it's not going away anytime soon. I do think it's important to note on the campaign uh, on the campaigning right now, just as a matter of reference, we are beginning to see as things open up. Uh, we are beginning to see candidates, uh, both uh, incumbents and those running for the first time, on the doorsteps in, in various fashions. Some just leaving a door hanger or something that just indicates, hey, I'm running. I'd like to uh, uh, get my name right out in front of you and ask for your vote. And others actually stepping to the doors and uh, seeing if the uh, if uh, if that voter will come to the door and is interested in having any kind of conversation, social distancing. Uh, in in effect, I think in most instances in the minds of these candidates, but but we are seeing some shifts. So to to suggest that this is going to be a, a campaign season absent of all uh, real direct voter contact, it's more limited. But I don't think it will be eliminated totally uh, from the equation. Taking bets on the first N95 mask that are branded with campaign <laughs> logos. Right. Leave those on the doorstep. For, yes. Leave those I've on my door. Already, I've already seen some. <laughs> <laughs> So Governor Stitt vetoed legislation to create a rural broadband expansion council and give lawmakers more say in Internet access in those areas. Governor Stitt says House Bill 4018 was unnecessary and redundant because Secretary of Digital Transformation already has a task force looking into this. But lawmakers refused to fund the Digital Transformation Revolving Fund. Ryan, is this all still coming from the fight over the budget? Well, it's coming from the fight over the budget, but it's, I think, more... uh, but it's better characterized as a fight between legislative power and executive power. Um, you know, this, you know, this was really collateral damage uh, in a fight between who is going to drive the, uh, the, the policymaking decisions around this important policy. I mean, rural broadband access is incredibly important. We're seeing, um, you know, that really uh, in, in stark contrast right now, uh, whenever we're talking about things like distance learning or working from home, you know, rural Oklahomans are at a, distinct disadvantage oftentimes over their uh, more urban or metropolitan counterparts because they just simply don't have access uh, to the kind of broadband that that we enjoy in, in Oklahoma City or Tulsa or some of the larger uh, cities in the state of Oklahoma. So this was, I don't think that anybody in the legislature or in the governor's office disagrees that this is a policy that everybody 
you know, needs to pay attention to that we need to invest in at the state level or at the federal level. Um, but what it really came down to is who was going to do that. You know, the governor wanted to do it through the Office of Digital Transformation. Uh, the legislature wanted to have some oversight in, you know, those decisions. So they created this council. Um, and that's really what it's about. It's, it's not about whether your lawmaker wants this to happen. It's about how they want it to happen. And, um, you know, whether it's going to be the executive gets to make the calls or the legislature is going to have some say in it. So that's we saw last year that the legislature granted in, in the governor's honeymoon period, period a lot of new powers to the executive branch, and they reserved some ability to push back on that. And that's what we're seeing right now. And Neva talked about that muscle being flexed. That's what this is really about. Neva. And I think muscle being flexed is is key to what we're talking about with respect to the to, to the rural broadband, because the person that was pushing both of these bills, his name on both of these bills was House Speaker Charles McCall. I mean, this is really where the standoff, I think, is, is between the House leadership and the governor. And as you as you outlined, Ryan, what the real crux of the matter is in terms of what these what these bills say. Everyone agrees it needs to happen, and the devil's in the details of who should make that happen and how. And let's remember, in this fight uh, over the Digital trans- uh, Transformation Revolving Fund, we saw in the uh, the uh, uh, FY 2021 budget, which starts July 1, that there were no dollars allocated to that revolving fund. And this is a, this ongoing kind of push back and forth uh, on this itch, on this particular issue, and I think uh, uh, what what we saw telegraphed when the governor vetoed uh, the bills was basically the House spokesman coming out and say that the House will respond in due course, and I think everyone expects that that will be a very swift and a very uh, 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 a very significant override on the House side. And I think uh, as it moves to the Senate, we would expect that that is very likely to happen there as well. State retirees are waiting to see what the governor will do with a bill on his desk to give them a raise of up to 4%. House Bill 3350 to give a cost of living adjustment to firefighters, law enforcement, and teachers passed overwhelmingly out of the House and Senate as one of the last pieces of legislation before lawmakers finish their work for the year. Neva, it's been a while since these retirees have seen an increase. It has. It's been 12 years. And I think uh, um, as they as they look at... Uh, and, and wait to see what the governor does. It's been interesting that he hasn't moved on this a little more quickly uh, this week and making his decision whether to sign or veto. And I think uh, given the fact that that uh, um, that the legislature did decide uh, to move on this, to make it a make it uh, uh, an overwhelming reality, uh, it was a 41 to five vote in the Senate. It was a 99 to zero vote mm-hmm. in the House very early in the session. It was the Senate that um, went through the two hours of uh, somewhat contentious debate uh, last Friday before they actually took the vote on it. Uh, one of the last bills, as you say, but uh, it puts the governor in a pretty difficult spot to uh, uh, to decide that he wants to veto uh, the uh, COLA bill, especially in light of the fact that he has to look at it and know that an override is very likely. Ryan. Well, and, you know, just some of the, the inside baseball uh, for our listeners, you know, the last day of, uh, we're saying the last day of the session, it was the, the last day of full work uh, in the legislature. Right. I mean, they're not the last done day they chose to set to end. The yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're coming in, you know, largely to deal with vetoes. Um, the House is, the Senate, 
presumably will as well. There may be some work next week, but hey man, anytime the legislature's in session, they could take up anything. Uh, and so it's not over just yet, but the, the last, what we believe to be the last full working day uh, in the state legislature last Friday, um, you know, this took up, even though it passed overwhelmingly in the House and ultimately overwhelmingly in the Senate, it was very contentious on the Senate floor uh, and took up over two hours of precious time on that last day. You know, they had a, the Senate had a massive agenda. I think that they passed their last bill sometime around nine o'clock Friday night. Um, and part of the reason that they were pushed so late into the evening and that the House was waiting on Senate bills until after 10 o'clock on Friday night. One of the reasons they were pushed so late in the evening was that this took two hours of debate, very emotional debate on the on the Senate floor. And it wasn't it wasn't partisan in nature. Uh, it was really debate among the Republican members of uh, of the of the Senate uh, that became the most heated, and the most passionate. And what you saw were two different philosophies. There was that, you know, the people that choose to dedicate their life, especially a lifetime of service, public service as state employees. Uh, deserve a, you know, oftentimes you're taking, you know, less money in exchange for that job. One of the benefits is this pension system and, you know, whether or not they deserve a cost of living adjustment that's long due, 12 years. Uh, and, you know, after multiple years of reforms versus there were some Republican lawmakers that were arguing that, that state employees shouldn't get special treatment, uh, that there were other uh, people in their in their uh, districts that were not getting anything, you know, that weren't state employees, they weren't getting a cost of living adjustment, and so why should we treat special uh, with special rights these state employees? As an interesting philo philosophical perspective, it's you know I think it's the wrong one, uh, but it played itself out very emotionally on the Senate floor on Friday and took up over two hours of time for a bill that ultimately passed overwhelmingly. The state's new absentee ballot law is facing a constitutional challenge. Two groups from the Democratic Party are asking a judge to block the state from enforcing notary requirements if voters have signed a ballot affidavit. The groups also oppose requiring voters to submit a copy of an ID with their absentee ballot. Ryan, do you think they have a chance here? Yeah, I think that these are going to be really interesting arguments. This is this is very different than the first challenge that we saw. Um, you know, this is this is a challenge based on on federal law um, for the most part, and this is uh, different. You know, the first challenge to the absentee ballot process that got us to where we are today. Um, it was a challenge based upon uh, a group of plaintiffs that were asking the state supreme court to apply an 18-year-old statute um, that had that created a, an alternative to having to go get your absentee ballot notarized so that you could self-notarize under penalty of law, you know, basically perjury. And, um, you know, that was a, a great victory for Oklahoma's absentee voters uh, or people that wanted to vote absentee, especially in a time of pandemic. The state legislature and the governor within days uh, overrode that, which, you know, for the most part, you know, you get to do that. I mean, it's a state statute. Uh, they overrode that. They created new requirements and some uh, wiggle room, at least for the June primary, on alternatives to uh, voting absentee without getting a notary. That's what's under challenge right now. And this will play out in federal court. This isn't going to play out in state court. This will play out in federal court and could ultimately find its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court before all is uh, said and done. Neva. Well, and I think it is interesting, uh, as Ryan said, I, it, the potential to wind up in the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, a, a real possibility. And the court uh, two years ago uh, in a 5-4 decision uh, on, on a voter 
question uh, in terms of uh, uh, it was Husted versus Randolph Institute. And basically what it, it said was they were challenging that voter inactivity, that they had sent letters, some didn't respond to the mail, they were then stricken off of the rolls and taking issue with that. And the court said that that didn't, uh, that did, that did not, uh, uh, that did not violate any uh, federal law. And I think what we're seeing is this trend nationally, state after state, not just Oklahoma, where we have these groups that are trying to uh, find whatever uh, whatever angle uh, that they want to uh, uh, look at uh, to lessen uh, the uh, kind of the process and 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 um, uh, you know and in in instances such as Maryland right now where they have an upcoming June second primary they've gone to they've gone to court uh, this week and and they're basically saying that they need more uh, they need need more locations for absentee ballot drop off and and other you know other factors so. There's a lot of confusion there, but when you really look at it and drill down, in-person uh, voting is still what uh, most voters uh, do. Even in the pandemic, where we may see an uptick on absentee ballots, we do not have a difficult or onerous um, uh problem here in terms of voters being able to participate if they want. And this notion that they have to put a stamp on uh, an absentee ballot and mail it in, or they have to have uh, uh, some identification to send with it or whatever the criteria may be. I just think these are really, uh, really a stretch uh, to have these kind of things uh, being argued. Uh, frankly, everyone would be better on both sides. I mean, from the political standpoint, just to do a better job of advocating to their audiences of voter participation period, which we've talked about for years and years on this program, about the fact even in Oklahoma, we have a poor participation rate, period, among folks that uh, should, uh, you know, should be more interested in exercising their right and, and ability to go to the polls and vote. Ryan, in the short term, will this uh, is it possible that that this law could be there could be an injunction against it just until the judge and until it goes through the whole process? Yeah, well, and, and I think that we should anticipate some uh, some ruling because that's, you know, the, the parties that have requested this. I mean, they've asked for injunctive and declaratory relief. And so uh, they want at the outset the court to impose uh, some requirements upon the state to remove what they're arguing, what I believe to be uh, some unconstitutional um, uh, burdens that are placed upon Oklahoma voters to be able to participate through the absentee ballot system so or process. So I think that we'll see some ruling on that. Now, that that ruling in and of itself could be appealed. Uh, so the the uh, a ruling on injunction could be appealed by the state. So this is but courts are uh, cognizant that this is all happening under a, you know, a real pressure cooker of of a time situation. I mean, ballots have to be mailed out. Absentee ballots would have to be mailed out. If there are going to be changes to a process, those have to happen very fast. So uh, courts, regardless of how they rule on this, I think are going to uh, act quickly to give both the state uh, and the complainants uh, that are that are challenging the state's uh, current laws and process to give them adequate time to respond. Well, some of the things that are in this particular um effort that's being made right now in Oklahoma, wanting, you know, wanting a judge to, to scrap a rule that the absentee ballots can be turned in after seven o'clock on election day uh, to be considered invalid, wanting to reverse the provision, you know, that would allow basically uh, party or, or, or uh, political party committees from, uh, 
collecting and returning absentee ballots, you know, to those that are physically incapacitated or susceptible to COVID. I mean, all of these things, I mean, being injected in at this moment, this close to uh, um, an election that's already in place, people understand what's going to go on. I think for the most part, they understand what their options are in terms of how they can vote. Um, And at the end of all of this, Oklahomans do want to have confidence in their election process, and they want to make sure that it's secure and free from fraud. So uh, these things just seem to raise more questions than answer and keep that question uh, clear in the minds of the voters. The state of Oklahoma lost state Senator Brooks Douglas last week. He died at the age of just 56 following a long battle with cancer. The Oklahoma City Republican was elected to the legislature in 1990 at just 27 years old and spent 12 years on the job. Neva, what were your thoughts when you heard of the passing of Brooks Douglas? Well, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, a sad uh, a sad day, uh, not only for so many Oklahomans who knew uh, Brooks and his family through the years, but uh, he, he he had such a tremendous life. And I think uh, uh, his legacy will live long after him. And I think it is it is noteworthy uh, when Governor, former Governor Brad Henry uh, eulogized him uh, last Friday. I mean, it was interesting to remember that both of them came into the state state Senate at the same time, both of them both of them uh, the same age. In fact, uh, the governor kidded about the fact that he thought he was going to be the youngest uh, to serve in the state Senate. And it was Brooks who actually was the youngest by about two and a half months, the difference in their birthdays. So um, he had an extraordinary life and he was a he was a soldier. He was a legislator. He was a filmmaker. He was certainly uh, a champion to crime victims' rights with over 30 significant pieces of legislation during his time in the state Senate. Um, he's someone that uh, uh, crossed paths with uh, literally uh, thousands upon thousands of people around the world. I mean, he's someone, when we talk about someone being a world traveler, Brooks Douglas was a world traveler. Um, he he logged in over 2 million uh, American airline miles, as, as, as people have reminisced and remembered, and was um, traveled more than 40 countries and had a significant impact where where he went and uh, who he met and dealt with. But most importantly, I think we remember uh, Brooks for the father and the husband uh, that he was. And uh, certainly, um, you know, I send my uh, uh, condolences to Julia and uh, Brody and Callie on uh, on this uh, very, very difficult time and on their loss. Ryan. Yeah, I think the the. Um... The further I'm, I'm removed from the legislature and, and the more I'm uh, more def- uh, in, entirely defined now by my family and my, my kids, mm-hmm. you think about a moment like this and your legislative accomplishments, none of that uh, pales in comparison to the investment that you've got in your family. So, you know, my my real condolences to, to his family and his kids and you know, to lose somebody that young uh, is just I, it's it's uh, it's unthinkable. And so uh, you know, my my real condolences to them and. You know, as a as a public servant, as Senator Douglas comes in, one of the youngest members of the or the youngest member of the Senate, whenever he comes in, and I can, um, I, I'm I'm more of the Brad Henry camp there. Though I came in at 24, thinking that I was going to be at that time the youngest member of the House, <laughs> and Trevor Worthen beat me by I think 10 days. Um, and you know, 
so I mean, I, I, under, I, I appreciate, you know, Senator Douglas being the youngest. I appreciate Senator Henry's or Governor Henry's perspective <laughs> uh, of, of being beat. Uh, and so, you know, Senator Douglas's time in the legislature, you know, really, I think, underscores uh, an important dynamic that happens whenever we think about criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. And you know, this this idea of somebody who is a survivor, uh, along with his sister, of one of the most horrific crimes that, that any of us can imagine. And the way that that then um, influences the way that we think and talk about uh, the criminal justice system. And I think that that's, if you're on the criminal justice reform side like I am, uh, I think that it's really difficult. Um, and, and Senator Douglas's career underscores this. It's really difficult to uh, ask both voters and your fellow colleagues in the legislature to step aside from the very emotional and very visceral response that we all have uh, to the crimes that were perpetrated on the Douglas family mm-hmm. and to think about criminal justice reforms that actually make us safer and prevent awful things like that, or at least not prevent, but lower the chance that awful things like that happen to other Oklahomans. And, you know, that's, it's, it, you know, for somebody who has played such a singular role in that criminal justice conversation in Oklahoma, uh, his influence will last well beyond uh, his years in the legislature and his life. I think one final note mm-hmm. uh, in thinking about his life, uh, Ryan, uh, six years ago when um, when Brooks uh, learned that he had colon cancer, the doctors at that time gave him only 18 months to live. But mm-hmm. Brooks, uh, such a fighter by nature and someone who um, uh, never, never let down, never gave up. I mean, he had six extraordinary years uh, uh, to uh, spend with family and friends and uh, do the things. So when people talk about someone who fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith, uh, I think we can uh, remember Brooks Douglas as someone who exemplified that very that very verse from the Bible. For sure. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.